And welcome to Max and Murphy here on WBAI Radio 99.5 FM and WBAI.org. It's Wednesday at 5 o'clock. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. I am without my co-host Jarrett Murphy from CityLimits.org. Org this week, holding down the show. We have a great show ahead for you. Uh, I was out last week. Jarrett's out this week. A little bit of a summer uh, dance here we're going to do, but some weeks we will be together and we have a great show ahead today. There's a lot going on in New York politics, even during the slow July 4th week last week, there was a lot happening, and now into this week, things have really gotten going again. It is never dull or slow in New York politics, of course. And so uh, today, what we're going to do on the show, we're handling a couple different topics today. In a few minutes, we're going to talk about the Queens District Attorney Democratic primary race, which is now headed into a recount between Queens Borough President Melinda Katz and public defender Tiffany Caban. Caban had uh, declared victory on primary night, but then once the absentee and some of the affidavit ballots were counted, Melinda Katz now has a 16-vote lead, and it is heading into a recount and also some challenges over some other affidavit ballots. So we will see where that heads. We're going to spend some time on that, how the recount works, what's the latest, what the political players are saying. In just a few minutes, I'll be joined by Juan Manuel Benitez of New York One and New York One Noticias, who's been covering the recount proceedings closely. He's been in Queens, in in the courtroom, at the recount facilities, at press conferences. So Manuel Benitez of New York One and New York One Noticias will join me in just a few minutes to talk the latest in the Queens DA recount. If you're itching to know where that's heading, I can tell you this. We probably will not know the winner of the primary for at least another 10 days. Uh, They're estimating somewhere between a week and three weeks. Um, So I would say it's safe to bet that for at least about 10 days, we will not uh, have a winner certified between Melinda Katz and Tiffany Caban in that primary. So we'll talk with Juan Manuel a little bit in just a few minutes. In the second half of the show at around 5.30, we're going to talk about police reform. Uh, we're going to be joined by one of the leading advocates in the police reform movement in New York. That's Antonin Pierre of the Brooklyn Movement Center, which is part of the Communities United for Police Reform Coalition. We're going to talk to Antonin about Uh, the work that Brooklyn Movement Center is doing and Communities United for Police Reform is doing, and all sorts of things related to progress, setbacks for the policing reform movement, evaluation of Mayor Bill de Blasio, evaluation of the state legislature and Governor Cuomo around aspects of the law that they control. And just so that you know, when we talked to to Antonine, um, we did invite NYPD P- uh, Police Commissioner James O'Neill on the show. We had some back and forth with uh, his spokespeople, but they were not able to confirm him to join us. So we had sort of held that open, um, but hopefully we'll get him at a later date to sort of give his perspective on police reform in New York City. Uh, but we also could potentially have some other guests coming up to give uh, some of that different perspective in some ways than the activists who are looking for more sweeping reforms than they've seen out of policing in New York. So those are the two uh, guests we're going to have today, and we'll tackle those subjects in a few minutes. Also in the news in New York politics uh, over the last couple of days and last couple of weeks, uh, today, of course, you probably heard about this, saw it, maybe you were there. 
There was a ticker tape parade in downtown Manhattan uh, held by Mayor Bill de Blasio in the city of New York uh, for the women's national team uh, of U.S. soccer who won the World Cup last uh, on Sunday. And there was a raucous parade. They estimated roughly 300,000 participants along the parade route downtown and then a ceremony at City Hall with some rousing remarks from some of the soccer stars. And of course, the mayor uh, spoke as well. Interesting sort of side political dynamic there, of course, is Mayor de Blasio running for president and sort of using this government function of holding the parade, which, again, they also did four years ago when the uh, women's national team won the World Cup. Uh, Previously, they also held a parade four years ago, uh, well before Mayor Bill de Blasio jumped into this presidential race. But with the mayor running for president, of course, everything takes on some more charged political dynamics. And the mayor made... Uh, what I see as a very conscious choice to politicize the government-run parade today. He decided to do a cable news TV segment and talk about if he was president, uh, how he would address the issue of pay equity for the men's and women's national soccer teams for the U.S. And of course, important issue, pay equity. uh, I don't just nobody would argue with that. Really, I mean, there's arguments about the specifics and what steps should be taken around ensuring pay equity. And I've seen some arguments that the women's national team players don't deserve the same pay as the men's team because of the revenue that's brought in by the different tournaments, etc. We can save all that for another time. I think just about everybody agrees in general concept of pay equity, and it's important for the mayor to, of course, address it in ways that he can, but he decided to basically turn the city government uh, holding this ticker tape parade for the women's national team, World Cup winners again, into something of a campaign promotion for himself. And he was going to already get a lot of publicity out of it just by participating in the parade and being all over TV and print and and such. And then he decided to take that a step further. I think that's questionable. I think it's worth raising questions around his choices there to do that. The mayor is, of course, polling roughly around zero and one percent in many of the presidential polls. He is hoping to make the second presidential debate, which is later this month. At the end of the month, there will be the same as we saw last month, a two-night extravaganza of 20 candidates, 10 on each night. The mayor made the first debate. He's hoping to make the second, but uh, we have not seen from the Democratic National Committee whether he will be on that stage or not. So, of course, um, he has been campaigning all over the country. He's going back to Iowa this coming weekend. And Mayor de Blasio is looking for all sorts of momentum to try to build for his campaign. It is, of course, um, something of good luck for him that the women's team won again. And he was hosting them for the parade today. And then, as I said, he sort of took it uh, to another level. Now, also today, Governor Cuomo decided to uh, seize on the moment in a different way. He decided to, right before the parade, which he also participated in, as he did four years ago, he decided to, in downtown Manhattan, sign a couple of pay equity bills that had passed the legislature in this legislative session that just ended. So he signed two bills. Um, Perhaps the more significant one of the two is a now law to ban 
employers from asking prospective employees about wage and salary history, that it cannot be a requirement of job interviews or job applications or job offers. And that is seen as a very significant pay equity measure because once you ask for salary history uh, from applicants, you often then base your salary offer on their previous uh, payments and wages and salaries. And therefore, because we know that women often make less than men, it sort of can perpetuate that trend. So if you ban the asking of salary history, it's seen as a significant step toward pay equity that employers should be paying really just um, what a position uh, is worth and what a candidate uh, deserves, whether uh, male or female. And so the governor signed that bill and another one into law this morning ahead of the parade. So those are some significant other dynamics to the the raucous and celebratory soccer parade uh, this morning. We also have today, uh, on a very different note, the City Planning Commission holding a very important hearing in the process around the closure of the Rikers Island jails. And the City Planning Commission hearing lots of testimony all day and into the evening today Uh, about folks who, uh, it's really about the replacement jails that the city wants to either build or rehab existing jails for one in each borough other than Staten Island uh, and the city planning commission now really moving the ball ahead in terms of the process around closing the Rikers Island jails, rehabbing new jails, considering this land use application from the New York City government in conjunction with the city council that will allow for construction to move ahead if it's passed by both the city planning commission and the city council with new jails, replacement jails, as I said, one in each borough other than Staten Island. There are, of course, some existing jail facilities in the boroughs, especially I believe the largest facilities are in downtown Manhattan and downtown Brooklyn. And those facilities would be uh, potentially expanded as well as a, a new facility built in the Bronx and a rehab facility in Queens. And there's, as you would expect, of course, local pushback on all four of the sites and plans, uh, local officials, community leaders pushing back and looking to downsize what the new uh, jails will look like. And the city has already made some concessions on that front. And as this moves through the city planning commission and then the city council, there's a very good chance other modifications are made to those plans. But at this point, it's extremely likely that the overall plan will move ahead. It's a, it's a little bit uncommon for something like this with four sites packed into one to move all together. That's a decision the mayor and the city council made last year to to push ahead like this, um, part of a concerted effort to really make sure that this plan all comes together over the next several years to close down the Rikers Island jail facilities. So that's another uh, thing in the news in New York politics worth really closely watching. So let's turn back to our main topic at hand in the first segment of the show today, and that's this Queens District Attorney Democratic Primary Recount. We'll be joined momentarily by Juan Manuel Benitez of New York One and New York One Noticias, who has been covering the race closely. And we're, uh, as we're joined by Juan Manuel, going to break down where the race stands, what are the tricky dynamics involved, what are some of the political implications as we really watch this recount unfold over the next, who knows, week to three weeks, let's say. And I believe we're joined on the line now by Juan Manuel Benitez of New York One and New York One Noticias. Juan Manuel, thanks for joining me here on WBAI. 
Thank you for having me, Ben. So let's start um, with what you've what you've been up to over the last week. Uh, hopefully, you had a little time over July Fourth to relax a little <laughs> bit. But uh, but leading up to the holiday, um, you and many others were very busy following uh, mm-hmm. what happened here last week. All of a sudden, Melinda Katz took the, took the lead in this primary. Uh, what happened last week? That's correct. So initially, you know, like on June 25th, the primary night, uh, we knew that uh, Caban, Tiffany Caban was ahead. Uh, she was ahead by a, about 1,100 votes. And during that night, she came out to speak to supporters, and she declared herself the winner of this Democratic primary for Queens District Attorney. Uh, at the same time, Melinda Katz, uh, the second place, uh, she came out to speak to supporters, and she did didn't concede the race. She said that she wanted every vote counted. And what happens for people who don't know how the uh, counting of the votes uh, goes uh, with the board of, board of Elections here in New York, so initially you count the ballots that were inserted into the machines, uh, right? And then that count is uh, automatic and it's uh, uh, by computer. Uh, but then you have a, a lot of ballots are um, basically absentee and affidavit ballots, so paper ballots, and those need to be counted as well. When we're talking about a, an 1,100 vote difference, that makes you think that maybe uh, the result might change in the last minute. And we're talking about 91,000 ballots or, or votes cast uh, during that primary. So even though Tiffany Caban uh, confidently declared herself the winner that night, uh, many people were cautious and were talking about, well, we need to wait. We need to wait a few more days until all those absentee and affidavit ballots are counted. And that happened last week. That happened on last Wednesday, on the eve of uh, 4th of July weekend, um, that in a Queens facility for the Board of Elections, uh, those uh, about 6,000 absentee and affidavit ballots. Uh, many of them were opened and counted. And uh, all of a sudden, um, by the end of the night, uh, Melinda Katz was leading the race that night by 20 votes. Fascinating turn of events there. Um, we, we also know that part of the reason that Melinda Katz and her camp sort of held out and wanted to see those ballots counted is because they knew just about all of the ones that would be counted after the machine readout of the of the actual primary day, absentee ballots were going to very likely favor her because she was more supported by older voters, voters that the Queen's Democratic Party operation knew to identify as longtime absentee ballot voters because they have some longstanding reason that they don't go to the polls, so they request an absentee ballot, correct? Correct. So we had like around 3,500 absentee ballots and uh, that needed to be counted. And um, anybody could think like, listen, if the difference is 1,100 votes, there were seven candidates in the race, uh, at least uh, on the ballot, there were seven names for that for that a primary election, it's going to be really hard for Melinda Katz to pull it off, right? Because we're talking about an 1,100 vote difference, right. and there are only 3,500 absentee. 
but um, you you talked about uh, what this race could mean, right, for the future. And and so we had a candidate like Melinda Katz, uh, supported by the Queens Democratic uh, County um, machine, uh, as we call it. Uh, and and we had Tiffany Cabana. She was an outsider. She was trying to run a campaign like uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez did last year, and so many other uh, young candidates and successful successful candidates have run in the past uh, few months. Um, she's not part of the system. She's not part of the democratic machine. And uh, we call it machine because it's a, it's a machine when it operates well, right? Yeah. Uh, so they made sure that uh, anybody they thought um, was not going to be able to go to the polling site, polling site uh, and during the, the election that uh, they got that vote. So they sent those absentee ballots and those people, uh, the majority of them, obviously, uh, favored uh, Melinda Katz in this case after we saw uh, those ballots uh, opened and, and counted. And so I, I spoke to Gregory Meeks. Uh, he's a congressman, Queens congressman. He's a chair, the chairman of the Queens Democratic Party. I spoke to him on, on the other day on Monday, and, and he told me, listen, uh, we know what we're doing. We've been doing this for a long time, right? So we wanted to make sure our candidate was going to be successful. So we did the work. We just <laughs> went out there and sent those absentee ballots, and that's what happened. Now, she's not the winner as of yet. We know that now there is a recount that is about to happen. The recount is happening just because, according to the election law in New York, if the margin between the two leading candidates is uh, smaller than uh, half of a percentage point, then you have to have an automatic recount of every single ballot cast uh, during the uh, during the election. And that's what's about to happen. And the Board of Elections employees at this moment, they are sorting all those ballots. They're prepping uh, to start counting those ballots by hand starting maybe tomorrow, uh, um, a job that might take about two weeks. And so a couple interesting dynamics of that recount are, one, there's this question about some of these other affidavit ballots, which uh, voters, if they go to the polls, they think they should be able to vote, but they're not in the poll book. They can fill out an affidavit ballot. The poll workers are supposed to help them. They put it in an envelope. They sign the affidavit on the outside, but many of those wind up getting thrown out by the Board of Elections. Some of them are controversial, and the Caban campaign especially is looking to have more of those affidavit ballots counted than it than the Board of Elections was planning to count, tossing some out on some technicalities, again, following the letter of the law, it seems like in most cases or all cases, but technicalities like certain aspects of the envelope not being filled out correctly. The Caban campaign was set to challenge the Board of Elections ruling uh earlier this week, but then that has been adjourned so they can do the hand recount first, correct? So we we could see the hand recount happen, then we return perhaps to those affidavit ballot challenges? Right. So initially, the Board of Elections got like about 2,300 affidavit ballots. And after looking at them, uh, the Board of Elections uh, decided that only about 487 
of those were really valid affidavit ballots. Uh, why? Because maybe someone who is not enrolled in the Democratic Party was trying to vote, or maybe someone who thought was a registered Democrat wanted to vote and filled out an affidavit ballot, and then they discovered, look, this person is not regist- a registered Democrat, so he cannot vote in this primary. Mm-hmm. So the uh, the Caban campaign, what they're saying is like, listen, out of all those invalid ballots, we believe about 114 of them might be valid. And we want a judge to hear this case and to see if we can validate those affidavit ballots, open them, and count them. We don't know who those people voted for, right. but we want those ballots in the tally. And there's some thinking that just like uh, the absentee ballots were expected to, to favor cats, that the affidavits, you know, probably possibly newer voters or voters who've moved around, you know, that those could favor Caban. Um, but as you said, we don't really know. But the Caban campaign certainly pushing for those to be counted. The Caban campaign also happens to be behind at this point, even just by 16 votes. So, of course, they want anything counted that they can get counted, even if they don't know. Uh, how it will shake out uh, as you have right, because like you said like it's 16 <laughs> votes right now just because on Friday last Friday the command campaign was successful in making the case about six of those affidavit ballots so they were opened and counted and that's why the tally right now is Melinda Katz leading by 16 votes and when we went to uh, the courthouse yesterday uh, basically what the judge said uh, is like well why don't we let the recount uh, proceed and then uh, uh, let's check in uh, again next Wednesday, uh, see how things are going. Uh, remember that the lawyers from both campaigns, the lawyers, they know each other. They've been working in different cases uh, for many, many, many years. Uh, they are frank um, balls for the uh, uh, Democratic uh, Party of Queens and, and Melinda Katz campaign. And you have Jerry Goldfeather for Tiffany Caban. So they know each other. They know what they are doing. They just want to prevent any certification of the results before for uh, a judge can can um, see the results and see how the process has been done in case they have to challenge that certification uh, from the Board of Elections. But the most important part right now, Matt, uh, Ben, is that we have in this manual recount, there are 400, yes. 400 ballots that went into the machine and the machine didn't count those votes just because maybe the voter didn't fill out uh, fill in the the oval on uh, the right way so the machine didn't pick up that vote so now those uh, votes are going to be uh, looked at by the workers at the board of elections and if uh, you if someone can see intent in that ballot like that that you see that the voter intended to vote for one of the candidates maybe by circling out the name of the candidate or underlining the name of the candidate by law in new york that vote counts so we're talking about 400 of uh, about 400 of those that can really change the outcome of the election so before they go into the affidavit ballots are might be like about 114 that are the campaign campaign once uh, validated uh, those 400 ballots that the machines didn't pick up uh, those are the important ones 
So you're listening to Max and Murphy here on WBI Radio. We are joined by Juan Manuel Benitez of New York One and New York One Noticias. Uh, he's been covering the Queens District Attorney Democratic primary recount and all the drama around it closely. So he's joining us, as you've heard, to explain some of what's going on in, in a process that we don't see very often and has just such tremendous implications. We're not going to spend time really in this conversation talking about the implications. We've spent time previously on this show talking about the candidates and their platforms and what's at stake here and really, um, you know, the potential for Tiffany Caban to win and, and bring in this radical vision of changing what the district attorney's office does versus Melinda Katz, who has uh, certainly a vision of change and actually during the campaign moved a bit towards Caban's uh, pretty far left platform. But Katz would be much more of sort of a moderate presence in terms of changing the district attorney's office, at least based on her promises. Um, so there's a lot at stake here. Obviously, we won't get into that. We're talking about the process of the of the recount here. Uh, Juan Manuel, talk a little bit more, though, about what's at stake for some of the other um, players involved. You talked about Gregory Meeks, the congressman from Southeast Queens, who's now the new leader of the Queens Democratic Party. You also have Governor Cuomo, who's come in to support Melinda Katz and and some others. And then on the Caban side, you have Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, state senators Jessica Ramos and uh, Mike Gennaris and some city council members and others. I mean, this has really been a fascinating race in terms of how the chips have fallen. This is not an Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez who had almost no endorsements versus the the machine. I mean, this has been a really interesting uh, race in terms of how people have backed the two different candidates. From your perspective, you know, who, who has who has a lot on the line here as we see where this thing heads? Uh, I think both sides, right? You have the uh, mainstream, uh, let's call them mainstream uh, Democrats. You have like basically the uh, the classic uh, Democratic Party, right? The, the, what we call the machine. Uh, they have a lot at stake because they have to prove that that, uh, that group of insurgents that uh, beat them uh, last year, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or so many um, state senators, in Albany, uh, the, um, the the ones that wanted to get rid of the IDC, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so all those insurgents were running basically outside of the regular uh, machine process. And they came, many of them, from the Working Families Party, uh, some of them from the uh, Democratic Socialists of America. Uh, so the Queens Democratic Organization, they need to prove that they can still win elections, that they are still uh, relevant and they're still powerful. On the other side, on the other hand, you have all these progressives uh, saying that we want to transform the way politics um, work here in the state uh, and in the city, and uh, we are going to keep winning elections with uh, really progressive uh, platforms and candidates, and uh, they have a lot at stake. And you mentioned a couple of the key groups, the Working Families Party and the Democratic Socialists of America. I mean, those are the two groups that when Caban was was prematurely declaring victory on primary night, she shouted out those two groups along with a bunch of the elected officials. I should also mention city controller Scott Stringer, who is the only citywide official to get involved in the race um, with an endorsement. You know, those were those are some of the big pieces helping propel the Caban campaign and also this army of volunteers. And it, it's really interesting to note, too, in addition to what you said, um, that labor, the labor unions were almost 
or were basically exclusively behind Melinda Katz, and still this race is this close. So, uh, you know, one of my takeaways here that's fascinating is. Of course, it's hugely important both for where the district attorney's office in Queens heads who wins this race, but also in terms of some of those political dynamics. But also, even if Melinda Katz squeaks this out in a close race, you know, the the political wins have further shifted. I mean, even if Caban does not win this, this race has sort of showed that politics is continuing to move in a, in a certain direction, at least in parts of Queens and parts of New York City. Would you agree or, or disagree with that? Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, we've seen how um, there is a, a battle right now for the heart of the Democratic Party in a, in a year before the presidential election. And um, a lot of young progressive activists, they want to prove that they can win uh, elections and that, that they should be, that the Democratic Party should be moving to the left instead of uh, uh, trying to go to the center. Um, so this, Tiffany Caban, if she wins, she would be some sort of like a national symbol on how like a young progressive uh, uh, woman can can win this important position with a platform of drastic reform of the criminal justice system. And she will be a political star, and she will be interviewed on television almost every day, and then <laughs> yeah. she'll be pushing the Democratic Party to the left on, this, on these issues and on so many others, like we've seen with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and other uh, young progressives that are now starting their political careers, not only here in New York, but also in Washington, D.C. Well, Juan Manuel Benitez of New York One and New York One Noticias, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you for joining us here on WBAI to break down what's happening at this point in the Queens District Attorney primary recount. You can catch Juan Manuel Benitez on New York One, New York One Noticias, especially the uh, flagship political show there inside City Hall. Juan Manuel, thanks a lot for the time. Thank you so much, Ben. And we'll be right back here. And we're back here, Max and Murphy, WBAI 99.5, WBAI.org, listener-sponsored non-commercial radio. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, hosting the show solo this week. Jarrett Murphy from City Limits is unable to be with us, but he will be back soon. And we are hoping to do some shows together this summer, as well as, of course, hosting some apart, as we've been doing these last couple weeks. We just discussed the Queen's district attorney Democratic primary recount that has started to begin. Basically, they're preparing for the actual recount uh, work uh, by sorting the ballots and getting them ready at uh, Queen's facilities where the Board of Elections workers are going to go over every ballot, somewhere close to 100,000 ballots. They have to now count individually under the watch of volunteers from the different campaigns led by public defender Tiffany Caban and Queensboro President Melinda Katz, as well as election lawyers. It is getting very complicated in Queens, but we, of course, are talking about what is at this time heading into the recount, as well as uh, the challenges over certain affidavit ballots, a 16-vote lead for Melinda Katz over Tiffany Caban. So we just spoke with Juan Manuel Benitez of New York One, who was in court and at uh, other facilities in Queens following the race recently, and he gave us an update on what's going on there. One of the interesting dynamics that Juan Manuel mentioned is that when you do a hand recount, you also count 
the ballots that people fed into machines, but the machines didn't read. And that can be hundreds uh, in a race like this. And they're estimating that those could be somewhere between two and 500 ballots where voters, if they made their intent for a candidate clear on the ballot, but the machine didn't read it, it will get counted. And so that is a very important dynamic to watch as we head into this recount, which will really get going in the next couple of days and then last for somewhere between a week and three. So stay tuned on that. We are going to shortly shift our attention to police reform. We're going to talk about what has and hasn't happened under Mayor Bill de Blasio in his uh, five and a half years as mayor. We're going to talk about issues related to Albany as well and police reform and police transparency with a leading activist in the police reform movement. Uh, That's Antonine Pierre of the Brooklyn Movement Center, which is part of the coalition called Communities United for Police Reform. Really the leading coalition of police reform activists, very involved in virtually every aspect of criminal justice reform, but especially around police accountability and transparency. And so we're going to be joined shortly by Antonine Pierre of Brooklyn Movement Center and Communities United for Police Reform. One thing I'll say before we're joined by Antonine uh, Pierre is... You know, Mayor Bill de Blasio also in part brought the issues of police reform back to the forefront of the discussion around his mayorality when, as running for president during the first Democratic primary presidential debate, he talked uh, proactively, brought up on his own that conversation that he says he had with his son Dante about taking extra care with the police as a young man of color. This is something that de Blasio had talked about fairly early on in his first term related to the death of Eric Garner uh, at the hands of NYPD officers. And de Blasio talked about having had the conversation with his son. De Blasio, a white man, is married to a black woman, Shirlane McRae, and talking with his son as a young man of color about taking extra care in dealing with the police. And that got de Blasio uh, a lot of credit from from some folks and a lot of scorn from others who who said that he was uh, vilifying the police by talking about it in that way. We saw after de Blasio referenced that conversation uh, with his son, Dante, on the presidential debate stage, Dante de Blasio then wrote uh, an op-ed about the talk that his father had had with him several years ago and some experiences that he's had with police officers in places outside of New York City. Um, And so that has really come back into the conversation in a way it hadn't in quite a while Although I will say Bill de Blasio and his management of the NYPD has, of course, been a constant topic of discussion over the years, as it is with virtually any mayor and the police department in a city of 8 million people in New York City.